Let us turn in the Holy Scriptures to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 20. At present, in the Holland Congregation, I'm preaching a series through the Gospel of Luke, and the sermon tonight is simply the most recent in that series. Just entered into the history of the Passion Week. So we will begin our reading at Luke chapter 20, verse 1, and continue our reading through verse 19. Verses 9 through 19 will be our text. And it came to pass that on one of those days, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him, With the elders, and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this authority? And he answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing, and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven, He will say, Why then believed ye him not? But, and if we say, Of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. Now begins our text. Then began he to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and let it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. And again he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away empty. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be they will reverence him when they see him. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What, therefore, shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, and shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. And he beheld them, and said, What is this, then, that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken." But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Here we end our reading of the Holy Scriptures. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, from the very beginning, Jesus' Passion Week was marked by conflict with those who stridently rejected him, despised him, and sought his death. We remember what the Passion Week is. Perhaps you children in catechism have learned about that recently if you're in the New Testament history catechism books right now, the Passion Week is the last week of Jesus' life. It's called the Passion Week because it was his week of suffering. Of course, Jesus suffered his whole life long as our sin-bearing Savior who took upon himself the guilt of our sins and bore the wrath of God against those sins. But his sufferings came to their highest point, their climax, the last week of his life, the pinnacle being his death upon the cross where he descended into hell and suffered the fullness of the holy wrath of God, 
to make atonement for our sins. Jesus' Passion Week is the climax of his sufferings. Luke's history of the Passion Week begins in the second part of chapter 19. The second half of chapter 19 records the event that began the Passion Week on Sunday. Jesus' triumphal entry. When he rode into Jerusalem, riding upon the colt of an ass, thereby fulfilling the ancient prophecy of Zechariah 9, verse 9, that the king would come to his city lowly, riding upon the colt of an ass, having salvation. And in Jesus' triumphal entry, he declares before all of Jerusalem that he is the king, that he is the promised Messiah, and that he comes to bring salvation. And he was received with the glad hosannas of the multitude, though the majority of them did not know or understand who Jesus actually was, and that he did not come to bring them the kingdom that they wanted on earth, but he came to bring his kingdom through suffering and dying on the cross. And many of the same people who sang hosanna on Sunday would say, crucify him on Friday. Monday, little is recorded in Luke. The Last few verses of Luke 19 record one important event on Monday of the Passion Week, Jesus' second cleansing of the temple, when for a second time he drives out the buyers and the sellers and the money changers who were there on the authority of the corrupt chief priests, scribes, and elders of the people. And now our text deals with an important event, an important teaching that our Lord delivered on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Tuesday of the Passion Week was our Lord's last day of public ministry. He spent much of the day in the temple teaching, as the opening verses of the chapter tell us. He preached the gospel in the temple, and the crowds of people at this point were still very interested in him. They would turn their backs on him before the week was out, but as of now, they are still very eager to hear him. And so Jesus preached, and Jesus taught. And as he did so, the conflict that had been building throughout his ministry with the religious leaders of his day, becomes all the more intense. The scribes, the Pharisees, the elders of the people, afraid to take any action, drastic action, and lay hands on him yet, they're still afraid of the people, attempt to discredit him, to trap him, trip him up in his words, and they come with questions. And that's what we read beginning of Luke 20, and if we read on, we would read in the rest of Luke chapter 20. That's what's behind their question about by what authority Jesus does these things. They're trying to trap him, find occasion against him. And that then becomes the occasion for the parable that is our text. One of Jesus' last parables, a striking parable. Because This parable is a parable in which Jesus prophesies exactly what is going to happen in the days to come in his Passion Week. It's an astounding parable in which Jesus explains his own death at the hands of the people of Israel. And it's astounding also from the point of view that Jesus is not merely explaining his own death to his disciples. He's done that many times before and they haven't understood. But he explains this to the very people who are going to do it. The leaders of the Jews and the people of Jerusalem. He tells them what they are about to do to him. He exposes their motives for doing it. He sets before them the judgment that will befall them for it. And beautifully declares the salvation that will come despite their best efforts to slay him and be rid of him. It's an amazing parable recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, because it's important. It's a parable of Jesus' Passion Week. And one that's richly instructive for us and comforting for us too, though it comes with sharpness and with a negative focus on judgment. There is much to be found in this parable teaches us about our salvation. So let us enter into this parable, one of Jesus' last. We're going to consider it under the theme, the cornerstone rejected yet exalted, drawing upon the last verses of the text, which really are 
the summation of the whole. The cornerstone rejected yet exalted. We're going to notice first the rejection of the cornerstone. Look at that. Secondly, the judgment that will fall upon those who reject the cornerstone. And finally, the marvel that God works through the rejection of the cornerstone. Our text is a parable, an earthly story with spiritual meaning, an earthly story that Jesus uses to teach us a truth about the kingdom of heaven. And so we begin there by looking at the parable itself, the parable which focuses on a vineyard. The first person that our text introduces to us is a certain man who planted a vineyard, and verse 15 calls him the Lord of the vineyard. This man was a wealthy landowner who put great care into his vineyard, its planting, its preparation, so that this vineyard would be fruitful. The parallel passage in Matthew 21 Verse 33 tells us a little bit more about this and shows us the care that this man put into his vineyard. Matthew 21, verse 33 says that the Lord of the vineyard hedged it round about, meaning he encircled it with a wall to keep invasive wildlife out of his vineyard. He digged a wine press for it so that the grapes grown in his vineyard might be pressed into that valuable wine that could be sold at high price. He built a tower a watchtower, a shelter, a storehouse. His vineyard was such that it had everything it needed to be fruitful and profitable. That's the picture that is set before us. And then the text says that he let it forth to husbandmen. You children know what a husbandman is? It's not talking about a married man. But a husbandman is simply a farmer or a vine dresser, somebody who tends to plants, cultivates them so that they flourish and bring forth fruit. In the parable, the Lord of the vineyard entrusts his vineyard to the hand of these husbandmen, these farmers, while he himself goes to a far country for a while to transact his own business. He retains ownership of the vineyard, but entrusts it to the hand of these husbandmen. And then, as the text says in verse 10, at the season, that is, at the right time, the time when the fruit has been harvested and gathered, the Lord sends servants to the husbandmen, that they should give of the fruit of the vineyard, that he may receive of them the portion of fruit that is his due. And the parable then sets before us a striking event. Three times the Lord of the vineyard sends these servants First, he sends a servant who comes in the name of the master to the husbandman and requests fruit. And what does the parable say about what is done to this servant? Shockingly, the husbandman lay hold upon this servant and beat him and send him away bruised, bleeding, and empty-handed back to the Lord of the vineyard. And in striking patience... The Lord of the vineyard sends a second servant. He could have very well sent an army of soldiers to destroy those husbandmen and reclaim his vineyard. But in patience, he sends a second servant. And the husbandmen beat him too. And verse 11 tells us they go farther than that. They make a sport of it. They shamefully entreat him. Meaning they humiliate and dishonor this servant before sending him back to the master again empty-handed. And Then the Lord of the vineyard sends yet a third. And this time, the husbandmen don't just beat him. You notice the increasing level of violence towards the master's servants. They don't just beat him, but they wound him. They wound him severely and cast him out of the vineyard. And there he lies until he can muster up the strength to return to his Lord and report what has happened. The parable emphasizes the tremendous wickedness of these husbandmen. Then at last, verse 13, the Lord of the vineyard says, What shall I do? I will send my own beloved son. Surely they will reverence him. Surely these husbandmen will have respect for the son of their Lord. Surely they will tremble 
or think twice about committing such outrage against the Son of their Lord when they see him coming, surely they will amend their ways and receive him honorably and give him the fruits that are the Master's due. What does the parable say? As Jesus continues, those husbandmen see the sun coming afar off, and they put their heads together. They reason, they dialogue with, the, with each other, and they say, Look, the sun comes, the air, come, let us kill him. And the inheritance, the vineyard will be ours. As the son of the Lord of the vineyard walks through the gate of the hedge round about the vineyard, you can picture those husbandmen pouncing upon him and brutally slaying him, casting him out of the vineyard. How Jesus' audience must be fixed on him with rapt attention right now. Scribes and the Pharisees, perhaps a little distance off, listening intently as well, though suspiciously. What's the point? What is Jesus getting at with this shocking story? As Jesus tells this parable, he is telling the story of Israel. He is telling the story of the Old Testament church. He is telling the history of Israel leading up to his day. And ultimately, he is describing precisely what is going on in Israel that very day. He is describing what is happening in Jerusalem even as he speaks this parable. He is telling the story of Israel, a story of rejection of God and the rejection of his Christ. That's the meaning of the parable. The Lord of the vineyard is Jehovah God. The vineyard is his kingdom and all its spiritual riches and privileges. The husbandmen are Israel. Yes, the leaders of Israel who bore an extra measure of responsibility and who were Jesus' fiercest adversaries, but also the nation itself, the people too. Jesus' hearers would have understood the drift of the parable. After all, this imagery of a vineyard is nothing new to them. They were acquainted with Psalm 80, the psalm that we sang at the beginning of our worship service, particularly verses 8 and 9, which describes Israel as a vine. There in Psalm 80, we read, Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest room before it, and it and didst cause it to take deep root, and it filled the land. This is the story of Israel. And the wicked husbandmen. Here's the striking part of the parable. The wicked husbandmen represent Israel. Israel as a nation. Israel viewed organically. We understand what that means. Jesus isn't saying that every single individual in Israel throughout the ages was a wicked husbandman. No, he's identifying the nation as a whole. For if you consider the history of Israel, throughout most of her history, the majority of the nation was made up of wicked husbandmen. Think the well-known example time of Elijah the prophet when in the northern kingdom there were but 7,000 who by the grace of God had not bowed the knee to Baal. See, God had chosen Israel to be his peculiar people. He brought them out of Egypt and planted them like a vine in the land of Canaan. He gave them innumerable spiritual riches. He gave Israel his law which was like a hedge that separated them from the rest of the world. That law which guided them in the way that they were to live life with God. God bestowed such care upon Israel, his vine. He gave them the promise of Christ. 
the ceremonies and sacrifices of the tabernacle and temple, which were as a winepress of joy for the Old Testament people of God. He gave them the watchtower of faithful prophets, priests, and kings. And yet, what stands out in the history of Israel? Departure. Idolatry. Think of the book of Judges. Right after the generation of Joshua dies... And a generation arose which knew not the Lord. And we find Israel bowing before Asherah poles and before the image of Baal. It only took a single generation. And that pattern continued throughout the ages of the judges, throughout the time of the kings, all the way to the Babylonian captivity. Throughout Israel's history, as Israel comported itself as a wicked husbandman, God patiently sent servant after servant, seeking fruit. The fruits of faith, repentance, and grateful obedience. All of those prophets. All of those prophets. And what did Israel do with them? Beat them. Shamefully entreated them. Wounded them. Even slew them. Jesus presents the whole history of Israel here. To this proud people. Who thought they were so great. To these proud religious leaders. Who built the sepulchers of the prophets. And said if we were there back in our father's day. We would never have done what they did. Jesus sets before them their history. And then he puts his finger on their sin. The sun. The sun comes. Wicked husbandmen take that son and slay him. And in that moment in the parable, Jesus' recounting of the history of Israel turns into a prophecy of his own rejection by Israel, a prophecy of his own death, which will soon come to pass, past, will soon come to pass at the hands of Of the very people that he is speaking to at this moment. This part of the parable was being fulfilled even as Jesus spoke it. As he speaks to the people and as he addresses their leaders. They are the husbandmen. Reasoning together. Conspiring to slay the son. In the fullness of time, God had sent his son to his vineyard. And the son came, the heir of the vineyard, the one who would be king. He came into the world, the chief prophet who spake by all of the prophets who came before him, the Messiah. Jesus' whole life in ministry was the coming of the son to his vineyard. He came To bring salvation to his people. To redeem his people. And he came preaching the gospel. Calling to repentance. Calling for fruit. And as John 1 verse 11 says. He came unto his own and his own received him not. You let your mind think back on the history recorded in the gospels. And you see how Jesus' entire life in ministry is really the culmination Of Israel's rejection of God and her Christ. All of Israel's rejection and stiff-neckedness and stubbornness throughout the generations comes to its climax in Jesus' own day. when When the religious leaders universally reject him. And when the people, though temporarily excited by the prospect of this man who does miracles and heals the sick and can give them bread, when they find out who he really is, a spiritual savior who doesn't come to send the Romans packing and establish an earthly kingdom in Jerusalem, they quickly don't want anything to do with him either. Rejected. Not just rejected, but rejected in hatred such that they seek his destruction. Jesus exposes to the people in Jerusalem their own hearts and exposes the leaders of the people for what they are. He shines light on their wicked motives. 
He shows them that they are no different than their fathers. That they are the culmination of Israel's apostasy. You see, you see them doing exactly what these husbandmen did in the parable. The scribes and the Pharisees reasoning together to find a way to lay hold upon Jesus and destroy him. That they may seize the inheritance. That the kingdom may be theirs. Theirs as they define it. A kingdom built upon the foundation of their own righteousness. Their own obedience to the law. An earthly kingdom in which they received the glory. They did not want the Christ of God. And they would seize him. They would cast him out to the camp. And very soon, outside the gates... Nail him to the cross on Calvary's hill crest. An astonishing parable, is it not? Astonishing for a couple of reasons. In the first place, Jesus comes to Jerusalem knowing all this. And let that sink in for a moment. Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Sunday, he came to Jerusalem riding upon that colt. He comes to Jerusalem knowing that he will be rejected, opposed at every turn, arrested, given an unjust trial, and crucified. And yet he comes knowing all this. Why? Because he is Jehovah's salvation who came to seek and to save the lost, who came to save his people from their sins. And to save his people from their sins, he must die. He is the sin-bearing Savior. He is the Lamb of God who takes upon himself the tremendous burden of the guilt of all of the sins of all of his elect people throughout all ages. He takes that burden upon himself and he suffers the penalty for it in order to satisfy the justice of God, to atone for that sin, to merit everlasting righteousness and salvation for his people. He comes willingly to be rejected, to be shamefully entreated, to be wounded, to be spat upon, to be slain at the hands of wicked men. And that's just the start of it. He comes to bear the wrath of God for his people. That Jesus comes to Jerusalem and preaches this parable shows us the love of Christ. His willingness to save his own. An astounding parable in the second place because it shows the hardness, the hardness of the people's hearts. Especially the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, and the chief priests. Jesus tells them, this is what you are doing right now, and this is what you are about to do. Wicked husbandmen. He exposes their hearts. And they go ahead with it anyways. Last verse of our text. And the chief priests and scribes, the same hour, sought to lay hands on him. And they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. Such hardness of heart shows us the hardness of the sinner's heart. And unless that heart is softened by divine grace, it will be as hard as stone. We see... That Jesus' preaching of this parable was indeed a double-edged sword. Though it was a sweet savor of life unto life for his own, it was a savor of death unto death. For those who were not his, the wicked husbandmen. But now before we pass judgment upon the Jews of Jesus' day, let's look at ourselves. Are we any different? Jesus' parable is given for our instruction. Yes, to show the events that led to Jesus' crucifixion. Yes, to show Jesus' knowledge and power over his enemies. To reveal his saving love for us. Yes, but also a warning to us. This parable isn't given to us so that we can point the finger at other people. Just as Jesus put his finger on the sin of the people standing before him, so too this text puts Jesus' finger on us. 
Are we any different? By nature, we're not. We mustn't think like the Pharisees thought, that if we were there, we would have done differently. Oh no. We have that same rabid sinful nature. We know it. How do we react? When the word of God comes to us, confronts us with our sin, deny it, anger, resist it, try to throw off the yoke of that word, not listen, excuse myself, minimize it, all of the rest? Or do we receive that word, humble ourselves before God? That is the effect the word must have upon us when it comes in sharpness and Jesus puts his finger on our sins and he does that to turn us from those sins. He does that with saving love. Let us humble ourselves. Humble ourselves. For those who humble themselves, God exalts. But those who will not be humbled, but exalt themselves, God will abase. Another application. God has given us a vineyard. He's put us in the church. Given us so many rich spiritual blessings in the church. What do we do with the vineyard? With our heritage? Let's not neglect it. Let's not despise it. Let us delight in it. Cherish it. Use it. Not hoard it, but share it. Just as the Lord of the vineyard desired fruit of his vineyard, so too our God desires fruit from this vineyard. Let us be a fruitful people, not a spiritually lethargic and sleepy people, not a people who go about our daily lives doing our own thing. Well, I show up to church on Sunday, can cross all my doctrinal T's and dot all my theological I's. I'm good. Oh no, God desires fruit. Jesus himself said that in John 15, verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, the fruit of a living faith, the fruit of genuine repentance, lively faith that works by true love for God and for the brethren, faith that shows itself living as religion, pure and undefiled, visiting the widows and orphans in their, distri- in their distress, and keeping oneself unspotted from the world, True faith that works by love, that neglects not the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. The parable is a calling to us in God's vineyard by the power of grace to be fruitful, to be fruitful for the glory of God. But now turning from the parable itself and the meaning of the parable... We come to the judgment. Jesus' parable not only reveals Israel's rejection of the Christ, but also the judgment that God will execute upon those who reject the Christ. That judgment, as it comes out in the text, has both a negative and a positive side. And we begin with the negative. Jesus pauses in his telling of the parable. Let's some suspense build. And then in verse 15, he asks the question. What, therefore, shall the Lord of the vineyard do unto them? The husbandmen. And the answer is stated in verse 16. He shall come. And destroy these husbandmen and shall give the vineyard to others. The parallel passage in Matthew 21 verse 43 fleshes that out with a few more details. Matthew records Jesus saying, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. As the husbandmen stand on the threshold of committing the greatest and most grievous sin ever perpetrated by humankind, the murder of the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus, having exposed them, declares to them what their judgment shall be. God will destroy you. It's a fearful word in its directness. God will destroy you. 
This judgment will come upon that very generation. The unbelieving people and upon their unbelieving leaders. The judgment would come in various forms. It would come in a physical form in 70 AD. When in God's providence the Roman governor or the Roman general Titus would march upon the rebellious city of Jerusalem, break through its walls, burn the temple, and utterly destroy the city. And the dream that the Jews had of a physical and earthly kingdom would forever be ended by the swords and siege engines of the Romans. Jesus himself alluded to that judgment of God already back in chapter 19. Already back in chapter 19, verses 42 through 44, where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem and speaks of that coming judgment. That would be the judgment of God fitting for the rejection of the Christ, the King that came to Jerusalem. But that judgment would be a spiritual judgment. It would be the judgment of taking the vineyard away. The vineyard kingdom, its riches, spiritual riches, its blessings, that kingdom would be taken from the nation of Israel. And the house of Israel would be left spiritually desolate. And ultimately, Jesus refers to the judgment, the final judgment, when those husbandmen would be destroyed. The husbandmen who cast out the son and killed him, the children of the kingdom who rejected the king, they, as Matthew 8 verse 12 says, they shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It refers ultimately to God's just condemnation of the wicked on the day of Christ, consigning them to eternal hell. Christ speaks judgment, fitting. Just judgment. But the people don't believe it. The people don't want to hear it. Verse 16 records the people's response. They cry, God forbid! God forbid that it should ever come to that. Israel losing the kingdom. Israel killing the Messiah of God? God forbid. The people were hardened did not understand already that judgment was becoming manifest but there's a positive side and the positive side of this judgment which Jesus pronounces upon the scribes and the Pharisees and the wicked of that generation the positive side is that through this judgment God brings salvation salvation to many people who up to this point were not called his people. Luke 20, verse 16. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen, there's the negative, and shall give the vineyard to others. Matthew 21, verse 43. The kingdom of God shall be taken from you, Jesus says, to those Jews before him, and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. The vineyard will be taken, but it will be taken that it may be given to another. Who is this another or these others? Well, Matthew speaks about a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. And the idea of that phrase is not another people group, another race, or another kingdom of man, but that word nation is being used loosely to refer to the spiritual Israel, the elect, but Particularly, the elect now as they will be gathered from all of the nations, tribes, and tongues of the earth. It is in that spiritual Israel, gathered from all nations, that fruit will be born in rich abundance unto the glory of God. It is to that spiritual Israel that the kingdom will be given. You see, Jesus here is moving past In his prophetic parable, he's moving beyond his coming death to his resurrection, to his ascension, and to the outstanding benefit of his ascension, namely Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit. 
which would equip his disciples to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth and would bring about the beginning of the ingathering of the elect from the Gentiles, the nation bringing forth fruits to which the vineyard taken from national Israel, to whom that vineyard is given, is the Holy Catholic Church, of which we are a part now in the New Testament. The Holy Catholic Church, the spiritual Israel, shall receive the kingdom. It's through the judgment of old Israel, national Israel, that salvation comes to elect of all nations. What Jesus teaches here is in harmony with what the Apostle Paul would teach in Romans 11, verses 12 through 15, where he reflects on this very reality, how the Jews in vast numbers fall away, and the Gentiles in vast numbers are being brought in to the church. And Paul calls this fall of the Jews the riches of the Gentiles. He calls the casting away of them the reconciling of the world through the breaking off of that branch, the wild olive branches are grafted in. And this will have its ultimate fulfillment too on the day of Jesus Christ when all of God's sons and daughters from the east, from the west, from the north and the south are gathered together to sit at the banquet table of the Lamb in the kingdom of heaven with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's then, after pronouncing judgment and also revealing the salvation that is to come, Jesus changes the figure. And here we get to the sum of the whole parable. Jesus changes the figure from husbandman and son to builders and the cornerstone. And he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. That's verse 17 of our text. And he beheld them. And the idea there is that Jesus pauses for a moment and gazes intently at the people and their leaders. Who in unbelief rejected him. And even after he had confronted them with what they were about to do and the judgment that would come, they persisted in that unbelief. He beholds them. And he speaks these final words. What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. Why this sudden change of figures from vineyard to cornerstone? What is Jesus doing here? What's the connection? Well, Jesus is changing the figure here in order to give scriptural proof for everything that he has taught so far in the parable of the vineyard. What Jesus is doing here is he is saying, this is nothing new. All that I have taught about the history of Israel, it's apostasy, it's culmination now. And you, you Israel, your slaying of the Son, all that I have taught has been said before. It's in the Old Testament scriptures. It was prophesied in Psalm 118, verse 22. Jesus is showing the people who reacted in disbelief at what he was saying that all that he was teaching was simply scripture. And all that he had said in his parable was simply the fulfillment This verse of the psalm. Those who think it could never happen that Israel would kill the Son of God. Those that think the kingdom would never be taken from national Israel. They must reckon with the prophecy of Scripture. The stone which the builders rejected. This very rejection of Christ. Is prophesied of old. Jesus is masterful here in his use of Psalm 118. 
This was the psalm that was upon everyone's mind. It was universally recognized as a messianic psalm. It was a psalm that was sung at the time of the Passover, which was the reason for the swelling number of people in Jerusalem at the time. It was the psalm that the multitude sang as Jesus rode into the city. Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord. They sang this psalm. And Jesus says, this same psalm, Prophesies what happens right here. My rejection at the hands of you, wicked husbandmen. Jesus is the cornerstone. Israel and her leaders are the builders that reject him. Just as the husbandmen called to tend to the master's vineyard. Yielded no fruit, so too Israel and her leaders claimed to be the builders who were constructing the house of God. And yet when God, in his good timing, gave them the cornerstone, that all-important stone upon which the entire structure of the house depended, they examined that cornerstone and found it not to their liking. And they discarded it, they rejected it, they would not use it. Jesus makes clear that in so doing, in the rejection of the cornerstone, they bring upon themselves their own destruction. Verse 18, Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Israel and her leaders We're about to join together in an attempt to get rid of the cornerstone forever by crucifying him. But in this, all they would succeed in doing is falling upon the stone and breaking themselves upon it. Jesus is the indestructible cornerstone of the house of God. And the stone remains untouched despite their assault upon it. And that stone in the coming days would fall upon them and grind them to powder. It would do so after Jesus' resurrection. And it would ultimately do so, will, on the day of his second coming. When he shall fall upon all the wicked as a stone grinding them to powder. Here there is a few points of application. Think of the familiar and beautiful passage in 1 Peter 2, which speaks about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, elect and precious, which God has laid in Zion, and which calls all God's elect people as lively stones which are built up into a spiritual house. That's the church. That's us. That's our lives. We are God's people, lively stones taken out of the quarry of this world, shaped and fashioned by the hand of God for our place in that spiritual house built upon the foundation that is Christ, the chief cornerstone. In this life, we are stones built upon a foundation. And in this life, we are building. Our life is like a building. Day by day, we're building it upon some foundation. The question is, what is our foundation? Is it the foundation of Christ, the chief cornerstone, or some other foundation that we have found for ourselves, which we have more of a liking for than the cornerstone provided by God? Man must do something with God's cornerstone. He will reject it, or by faith he will embrace the cornerstone. Thus, there's a call of the gospel to us tonight. The call of the gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him alone for your salvation. Embrace by faith the only and chief cornerstone. Repent of your sins. Flee to him. Cast yourselves upon the cornerstone. All who cast themselves upon the cornerstone in faith will not be broken but will find that cornerstone to be a merciful Savior who receives you in the arms of His mercy and His all-sufficient sovereign grace. 
cast yourselves upon Christ. As 1 Peter 2 verse 6 says, He that believeth on him shall not be confounded. A man can either be built upon Christ and never confounded, or he can fall upon Christ, the chief cornerstone, and be broken. And there is the warning. If you do not believe, if you reject the cornerstone as so many did in Israel in Jesus' own day, if you strive to build your life on any other cornerstone, if you seek your salvation in any other, you will fall upon this stone and be broken. And upon all who seek some other Savior, upon all who do not believe, upon all who do not repent sincerely of their sins, this cornerstone will fall in judgment and grind that man to powder. Let us hear the call of the gospel and the sharp warning in this text. Delay not. Young people, do not think that you have time to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season and to worry about things spiritual at some point in the future. If you are living in sin, beloved, if any are living in sin and cherishing that sin, refusing to repent of that sin, hear the warning of this text. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He who does not repent will fall and be broken upon the stone, and the stone will fall upon him and grind him to powder. Repent and believe the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's comfort for the church. There's a call of the gospel in the text. There's a warning and a calling to repentance. And there is rich comfort for the believer and for the church. Again, who are we? What is our identity? We are God's people. We are his children. We are lively stones quarried from the world and set by the hand of God upon the chief cornerstone. Beloved, believer, fixed upon that cornerstone. You can never be destroyed. That cornerstone is indestructible. And you are fixed upon it. Church. Fixed upon the cornerstone. That cornerstone is indestructible. Its strength is your strength. Its strength holds you up. We can never be broken or dislodged from God's house. No matter how fierce the storm is that assails. No matter how powerful the waves of affliction and adversity that batter up against us. No matter if the devil himself and all his legions attack and assail us. We are fixed upon the cornerstone. The indestructible rock that is Jesus Christ. And the very gates of hell cannot prevail against the church or the believer fixed upon the cornerstone. Jesus, the cornerstone, is the rock higher than we are, the rock upon which we are lifted above the wind and the waves. And that cornerstone will fall upon all God's enemies and ours, upon Satan, upon his host, upon sin itself, and Grind them to powder. We are safe upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. Is that not a marvel? A marvel? Is not this cornerstone a marvel? And is it not a marvel of God that it is precisely through the rejection of the cornerstone? That salvation comes to us. And that the cornerstone rejected is yet exalted to the highest. That's the marvel of God. The rejection of the cornerstone is not an accident. It is not a sad chapter in history that was outside of God's control. But the rejection of the cornerstone and the slaying of the son by wicked hands 
was according to God's sovereign plan for the salvation of his people. Jesus quoted from Psalm 118. He quoted verse 22. But verse 23 has something important to say to us along with that. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous, marvelous in our eyes. Through the rejection of the cornerstone, God accomplished the salvation of his church. Through the rejection of the cornerstone, we are accepted of God. The rejection of the cornerstone by the builders did not stop the building of God's house. The slaying of the son by the wicked husbandman did not thwart the coming of the kingdom, but served it. Having been filled with the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter was able to see this and powerfully preach that very truth in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. In his Pentecost sermon, Him... Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. That doesn't take away from the guilt of the wicked husbandmen who crucified the Lord Jesus. They did so by their wicked hands and they would be judged for it. But their wicked hands were under the sovereign control of God who works all things after the counsel of his will and is able even to use the wickedness of men to accomplish his good purpose. And God used the greatest wickedness ever perpetrated by humankind to accomplish the greatest good for his people, our salvation. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Through Christ's suffering and death on the cross, the foundation of our salvation was laid. For by his death on the cross, Christ merited and obtained all salvation blessings for us. The indestructible rock was cleft for you and me. That his blood might be the covering. So that we, covered by his blood and robed in his righteousness, might stand before the judge... Hear that verdict, innocent, righteous. Jesus was innocently condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. Jesus was rejected that we might be accepted of God. And even when all of the powers of darkness rallied together to crucify the Son of glory, Satan, sin, the wicked world together, mustering their might, the blow that they dealt upon the cornerstone only broke them. And exactly when they seemed to be victorious, they were crushed in defeat. When the Son was crucified, the serpent's head was bruised. They fell upon the cornerstone. And the day is coming when the cornerstone will fall upon them and grind them to powder. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. God raised his crucified son, raised the rejected cornerstone and exalted him, raised him, the stone that the builders rejected, raised him to become the headstone of the corner, head over all things to the church, head over all exalted. And that is where he is now, reigning at God's right hand, gathering his lively stones, building his house until the day comes again for judgment and salvation. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Beloved, you're built. You're built upon Jesus, the chief cornerstone. Believer, you are safe upon the rock that is Christ. Cling to him. And in all adversities, in all your trials, in the battle against sin, in all of the pain and tears of this life, cling to him. Your eternal salvation is secure. Trust in your all-sufficient Savior. The cornerstone rejected 
yet exalted for you. And the psalm that Jesus quotes here in our text will be yours, will be mine, and will be the song of the triumphant church. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, a powerful parable of the Lord thou hast given us in Luke chapter 20. And as we have heard that word, apply it to our hearts, that it may show us our sin and move us to faith and repentance. But may it above all comfort us that we may see Christ, the indestructible rock, the cornerstone of the church, the author of our salvation, the finisher of our faith. And may we steadfastly trust in him throughout all of our earthly way, that we may rest in him until he comes for us to receive us into the place even now he is preparing for us. Bless thy word to our hearts and dismiss us homeward in peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.